Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you were visiting him in his room to change the light bulbs, uh, did you see that there was some art thing on his walls or somewhere? Or did you have a clue? Yes. Vivian Girl's portraits were on the walls. I don't know if five or seven individual girl portraits were there. Mm-hmm. But there were, you must remember, this room has never been painted, never been cleaned. So it was dark mm-hmm. and almost black. The seven Vivian Girls, whose portraits Henry Dogger hung on his wall, are the heroines of his 15,000-page novel In the Realms of the Unreal. In his story, these seven girls lead a rebellion of child slaves against the evil nation of Glendelinia. When Dagger's work was first exhibited in the 70s, the Vivian girls became incredibly controversial. Because he drew them repeatedly naked, he was labeled as a pedophile. Today, scholars believe the Vivian girls are perhaps the most misunderstood aspect of Henry Dagger's art. My name is Philippe Cohen-Solal, and you're listening to the fourth episode of Outsider, the amazing story of Henry Dogger. To delve deeper into the Vivian girls' story and their representations, my guest for this episode is an academic who has focused her research specifically on Dogger's Little Warriors. Uh, my name is Lisa Runquist, and I am a professor of art history at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. My research on Henry Dogger is based around his conception Uh, of little girls. I've been very interested in how Henry Darger filters culture and puts that, modifies it, and puts it into his work. Lisa Rundquist has been working on Henry Darger's for the past 20 years. She has just published a book titled The Power and Fluidity of Girlhood in Henry Dogger's Art. She's interested in finding out where the idea of the Vivian girls came from. Can you give us a, an overview of the plot? Where is it set? And, and who are the Vivian girls? Sure. The title is The Story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as The Realms of the Unreal, of the Glendeco Angelinian War Storm Caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. Uh, many uh, scholars just abbreviate that to In the Realms of the Unreal. Darger began to write this around 1911 and continued it through the rest of his life, probably up until about 1971, and he passed away in, in 73, I believe. It's about 15,000-plus pages of a story of the Vivian girls and a whole 
army of Christian crusaders that fight against an army of what are kind of godless, uh, satanic nations. And so it's nations that are under Angelinia that are the Christian side, and then Glandolinia are the, their foes, and the Glandolinians practice slavery. And so they have enslaved all the indigenous little girls on this unnamed planet. Um, the Vivian girls are the key to the insurrection and the saving of this planet and all of these girls. So uh, there are seven Vivian girls and they are the main protagonists of the story. We already know that Henry Darger was inspired by popular culture, but Lisa Rundquist takes this analysis a step further. Visually, the Vivian girls initially came from photographs that were reproduced in magazines and in the newspaper. And then he gradually transitioned into using linear representations or linear drawings of little girls that are from comic strips and comic books and fashion advertisements. So he gleaned his imagery from popular culture sources. Um, and what I've been interested in in my book is um, also where he gleaned the examples of these girls in terms of their sense of virtue and humility, also self-sacrifice. The little girls are everywhere. They are the victims, they're the heroines, they're the crusaders. Darger even refers to them as martyrs. In Darger's never-ending war, the Vivian girls are heroic soldiers. They are ready to face all dangers and even death to save children from slavery. Even though they are only around seven or nine years old, they seem to defeat all of their opponents, even when faced with armies of men. So I have a chapter in my book that is called Littleness, and I look into this adjective, little, that he uses to describe these girls. They are always little girls. They're of a, an age group that's prepubescent. But he mentions a couple of examples. He writes about, uh, includes little Eva or Evangeline St. Clair, who's from uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. He mentions The Little Rebel, which was a 1911 play about the daughter of a Confederate soldier. And The Littlest Rebel, which was a movie produced in 1935, starred Shirley Temple. My mommy and daddy taught me never to tell a lie. Who are you? I'm a Confederate. So you're a little rebel, eh? Your daddy a soldier? She's the best soldier in the whole world. And it's really acknowledged as the moment when her career takes off. Uh, Darger had three different books about Shirley Temple. He had a fan club photo of Shirley Temple. And scholars really acknowledge that Temple was the face of childhood in the 1930s, you know, in this point where Darger is really working on his own um, book project and, you know, visual project. The other little character that Darger references is the little flower of Christ, or St. Therese of Lisieux, who was canonized in 1925. He features her in one of his artworks, where she is in the background. It's an actual holy card that he's traced. With that holy card, there's a pendant piece that is the Sacred Heart of Jesus holy card. 
and before them is unfolding a story about the Vivian girls and their desire to sacrifice something for their enemy. So I looked into, you know, those three examples and what they could provide for Darger and how he either writes about them or he uses them visually in his work. And interestingly, all those three examples, the Little Rebel, Little Eva, Little Flower of Christ, all three of those either real uh, individuals or fictitious individuals, the mother of those girls dies when the girls are a very young age. And so there's something there about the orphan child, the motherless child, that I think also relates directly to Darger's own personal story that he, I think he, of course, affiliated with. Can a boy forget his mother's prayer? When he has wandered, God knows where It's down the path of death and shame But mother's prayers are heard the same One of the reasons Henry Dogger has received so much criticism over the years is because child nudity and graphic violence are both very much present in his artwork. For that... He was called a pedophile, or even worse, art critic John McGregor famously said about Darger that he had the mind of a serial killer. In a way, the Vivian girls have always been kind of, kind of controversial because of what was perceived as sexual innuendos in Darger's work. But I don't remember seeing any representation of sexuality in his work. So why does sexuality come to mind when we look at his work? I, I think because anytime we see nudity, or nakedness, I think we have this inclination to associate that with sexuality or sex, acts of sex. And nakedness can mean all kinds of things. So in art history, we talk about heroic nudity, for example. And you think about uh, Michelangelo's Statue of David as a heroic nude. Nudity could be conceived in more of a way that you think of as nakedness, which has a connotation of vulnerability. And sometimes slaves are shown naked in different cultures and in their representations of that. It also could reflect innocence, especially with children. You know, there are all kinds of photographers that have photographed their children nude, and that's been perceived as a sign of innocence. Being without clothing Being naked or nude, and however you might frame that, it's ambiguous. You know, it's it's read by context. So I think to look at Darger's little girls as possibly being innocents, which is what he refers to them as in his writing, he refers to them as holy and innocent, that you could also read the nakedness of them as about that Garden of Eden kind of innocence, you know, before the fall, before having sin, that he could be representing them as innocent by their nakedness. Them legs stands everywhere, crocodile bands, belly air, and there you are, happy landing on a chocolate bar. Perceived sexuality in Dagger's work could also come directly from his source material. The sexualization of young girls is everywhere in popular culture around the time Dogger is creating his artwork. Advertisements, magazines, comics, movies, everywhere he draws inspiration from, they are sexualized representation of young girls. 
Shirley Temple, one of his main inspirations, was no exception. Research shows that in the 30s, Hollywood sexualized child actors like her in order to attract a male audience. You know, you look at the Coppertone girl ad, there are a lot of ads and representations, even in comic strips of, you know, what we can understand and read and interpret as this sexualization of childhood. And we kind of devise innocence as being without knowledge of sexuality or without knowledge of adult concerns, what we think of as adult, you know, content. So whenever you have a, an image that conjures innocence, like a little girl image, even though it's from a comic book or a coloring book, we often have this tendency to think about protecting that innocence. Like that is a vulnerable image. You know, if you were to see a, a real little girl, you think of a little girl as being vulnerable to those kinds of a, adult concerns. So when I, when I look at Darger's work, I often think about how his whole body of work exploits that. You know, these little girls are in peril. Uh, these little girls are under threat of being killed, and many are in his story, killed, you know, really savagely. And that, you know, Darger's written over 15,000 pages of this story. What better of a way to grab the attention of a reader, even if this reader is imagined, by threatening all that is held to be innocent and holy and dear, so that the little girl is a perfect vehicle for keeping the story going. We sigh for the child slaves, dread the pains of the new. Their raking sorrows are many, their joys are few. Another controversial aspect of Henry Darger's representation of the Vivian girls is the fact that he very often drew them with male genitalia. On this subject, a lot of assumptions have been made. Some art critics have said that it was possible Henry Dogger had never seen a naked woman in his life. I was curious to know what Lisa thought about this. You know, there is one picture, one uh, photographic, like a newspaper reproduction of a photograph of a naked woman that's in the American Folk Art Museum archives that Dogger traced. It's an image that doesn't reveal a whole lot of information, but it is an adult woman. And that obviously he saw and traced. We can tell that he looked at it and spent some time with it. You know, he grew up in institutions and as a lot of children do, they find out about the opposite sex through various means, through talking with other kids, maybe seeing things. It just seems to me unlikely. Lisa's own theories on this is much different. She has gone back to the roots of Darger's storytelling, to the one thing that is causing this never-ending war, religion. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you. 
You know, I have a whole chapter about the intersex characteristics of the Vivian girls. And so I took it into a different direction. One of the things I I bring up is that Darger tends to draw girls with male genitalia in moments when the girls are fighting and running and fleeing. And I went into thinking about Catholic stories and Catholic folklore and Catholic vidas, the lives of saints, and especially since he refers to them as martyrs and being saintly. And so the Vivian girls in particular So I started looking into stories about female saints that were transgressive and that they crossed gendered boundaries, both that were social as well as physical. And Joan of Arc comes up in his writing. Uh, She's also pictured in one of his works. Um, She's very much part of a group of women that scholars refer to as becoming male and that they did transgress into this boundary of what was considered maleness whether they dressed in men's clothing or they acted with a strength and fortitude that was reserved for men or that some of them actually, according to their stories, physically transformed. Some stories like there's St. Vilgefortis, which means strong virgin, who grew a beard overnight to avoid being married to a pagan man. And then there's at the top of this group of becoming male women is Vivia Perpetua, St. Vivia Perpetua. And of course, I couldn't ignore the name. So the Vivian girls, um, and then you have Vivia Perpetua, which means everlasting life. But uh, Vivia Perpetua, as one of her many dreams that she had, um, the last dream she had uh, before she was martyred in a coliseum in North Africa, was that she transformed into a man, that she physically became a man. She had a dream that she was to enter the Colosseum, and as was customary for gladiators, they would strip them down as a way of showing more of the athleticism of the body, and that she was stripped down, and this is written in in her Vita, in her life story, that she looked down and became a man, and that was her way of going into battle. Scholars equate that, and theologians equate that to her becoming one with Christ, and that Vivia Perpetua is seen as kind of one of the few women that is perceived as having Christ-like fortitude. Um, She died in that Colosseum, and so she was martyred there. The Vivian girls are these little girls. They become that vehicle in Darger's story of that martyr, that saint, the self-sacrificing type, the the virtuous type. And he holds them to such a high esteem that to me, there is a whole heritage and a whole history of stories about female saints that are transgressive and that could this possibly be a model for his girls. In your research, you mentioned an excerpt of the Realms of the Unreal in which Targer explained his choice of using little girls as the heroes of his book. Can you tell us how he justifies his choice? Sure. The um, the excerpt is from volume seven, or excuse me, six. And um, it's one of those introductions where he speaks to a quote, unquote, dear reader. Um, so it's an introduction that's explanatory. 
And he says, although, dear readers, in this big story, boys and men play usual and principal parts in the dreadful battles. And during the Great War encountered many terrible adventures by land, sea, fire, water, and so forth. The reason the story runs so much with little girls as the actual heroes in this warfare is because, under most circumstances, women are braver than men. I got to show that by putting little girls in this story as the real heroines. That little girls do and are brave enough for a fact to be able to play and show any amount of nerve and courage, full, equal, or more so than boys or men or women who may take part in active warfare. I wonder if art critics would have been so shocked by the images created by Henry Dagger if his main protagonist had not been little girls. As Lisa Rehnquist underlines, culture has a lot to do with how we perceive his paintings. The pieces really say a lot about the individual who's looking at the work, as well as we often think it's all about Henry Dagger, but it's also about how we respond to that image. And it is a cartoonish image. It's not even a photographic image. So it's in many ways detached or departs from reality um, by its cartoonish nature. But we still feel some emotional, it still triggers something in us psychologically or emotionally. And I think if it was violence of men upon men, it would be different. But it's violence of adult men upon small girls, you know, little girls that are, according to him, ages like six, seven through age nine or so. Uh, And so our association with that is more intense. (laughs) And that the images are really graphic. They are and they're not. I mean, they are stylized uh, in their graphic quality. Like he would trace um, anatomical parts, maybe from some kind of medical textbook or pamphlet that he had from his work as a hospital janitor. And, um, but they are eviscerated and they're crucified and they're strangled. Um, And if you read the text, the descriptions are quite graphic about these little girls being killed. And often the little girls will shout out, I see God before they expire which is really interesting that he reinforces this kind of martyr image about them. But they are killed in similar ways as martyrs are. When you read martyr stories and their eyes are poked out or they're skinned alive or, you know, they have these terrible, terrible stories of how the martyrs are killed. And it seems like Darger is recreating or reenacting a lot of those martyrdoms kind of exponentially by thousands of children that are killed in this way or, you know, their bodies are heaped up. Uh, They litter the whole landscape. And we look at this and it's horrific because it seems senseless. It is also very possible that Henry Darker was replaying his own trauma in his art. Biographers like Jim L. H., have noted that the different tortures inflicted on children in his art are similar to those he might have witnessed at the Lincoln Asylum, where children were beaten and strangled. I'm sure there's trauma. You know, there could be something that he is pushing down, that he is working through possibly uh, about his own life. I think he's 
you know, reading these stories about martyrs and hearing about them in the Catholic schools that he's in. He often talks about having conversations with nuns. Um, a lot of these martyr stories are used as, you know, morality tales to scare kids, I think. And he is, you know, just really aware of all of the stories in the daily news of kids that are being abducted and that have been murdered. And I think he's absorbing all that. I think all those things come in together in his work in a way that is complex and difficult to just kind of pull apart. Henry Dogger didn't leave any clue about why he made his art. We can only assume that it was a way for him to cope with a traumatic past, as it is the case for a lot of outsider artists. As personal as it was, the work he left behind influenced a lot of artists over the years, including myself. The album I just released with Mike Lindsay, Outsider, was made from lyrics Henry Dogger wrote. In the next episode, Mike and I will tell you about our wonderful journey crafting this album, and we will explore Henry Dogger's relationship to music. You phoned me in a sort of a panic, I seem to remember, and you kind of said, um, are you free? Like, It felt like it was like, are you available next week? We need to come and write a, a whole EP or five songs for uh, this Henry Dogger idea for this exhibition that's happening next month. I've already booked the record pressing plant before we've even written any music. So it was great. Sometimes you need that, you know, just to get the project moving. It's just uh, set yourself a ridiculous deadline and then it works. Outsider is a seven-part podcast series. It was created by Philippe Cohen-Solal, written by Clémentine Spiller and produced by César de Pouilly for Yabasta Records. Special thanks to Jeffrey Carey for reading excerpts from History of My Life by Henry Dogger. If you enjoyed the music in this episode, you can listen to The Outsider Album by Philippe Cohen-Solal and Mike Lindsay. The album is inspired by the works of Henry Dogger. It's out now and streaming on all platforms. Master, here am I.